You're listening to a podcast from 702. 702. Masterclass. So one of the books that I've had on my bedside stand um, has been Land Matters, a second book from uh, advocate Tembe Gangugai Tobi. Uh, so it's Land Matters, Essays, Failed Land Reforms and the Road Ahead. And in the book, he goes back in history. Um, he's a great storyteller. I think if you've heard uh, him in court at any point, you, 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 you get a sense of how good a storyteller he is. Um, and he's done the academic research. There is an incredible reference list at the back, pages upon pages of a reference list from about page 247, right to the end, um, to, uh, page 257, you know, of just references. And it's quite a thorough job. So he goes back into history. He shows how Africans' communal land ownership was used by colonial rulers to deny that Africans owned land at all. Um, and he explores the effect of the land acts over the years, various land acts over the years. So I think if you're a lover of law, you'll really love um, how he uses the laws uh, uh, to tell the, to talk about the impact that they had. Um, and of course, the, the follow up laws, you know, to previous ones. He explores Bantu stands, forced removals, and a number of other themes like women and land. And he also considers in um, the later parts of the book, the ANC's policies on land um, throughout the 20th century, um, and then, of course, into post-democracy. And we have this uh, uh, commentary, of course, around the negotiations of the 1990s and what the ANC has subsequently done while in government. The book is a must read. It really begins with um, a, a, a passionate retelling of our past in which he makes clear why we have a land question in the first place in South Africa. He also doesn't shy away from the brutal history of colonial occupation, of stock theft by settlers and the British government. Um, the arrogance, for instance, of the Berlin Conference, you know, which, uh, whose consequences we continue to, um, to feel today across this continent. And of course, the relentless racism of apartheid and the impact that it's had um, on the people of this country and the fact that all of these are in are an inseparable part of the story of land in South Africa. So today, Advocate Mugai Tobi has uh, agreed to do a masterclass about the issues of land reform in South Africa. And that's how we'll be spending the hour Good afternoon, Advocate. Welcome. Welcome to 702. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. Um, I'm very pleased that you've given a succinct summary of, of the book. I think anyone listening to you then knows that, uh, well, I suppose they can still buy the book, but you've given them a perfect summary. <laughs> I do think they must buy the book because of the debates that we're having and how uh, they rage. And firstly, for me, I wanted to say congratulations on another fantastic book. But also on the cover, you've got the work of Sitla Morajo Mashilo. And um, I think he's a brilliant artist who has a deep love for the land himself. And his work always expresses such a deep sense of social conscience. Was it your choice? to have uh, Sitlamo Rajo's art on, on the cover? Um, I think his choice uh, initially, but yes, ultimately mine. And there was a doing and throwing uh, with, the, with the publisher uh, about, uh, about using that. 
but eventually they they agreed. Uh, it's perfect. It's fantastic. Uh, he he is wonderful, uh, and, and that picture that he's got there. I mean, when we finally agreed with the publisher to to use that uh, that painting, uh, and then he said, "Well, it, it actually quite literally resonates with the title of the book mm. uh, because it's land on the outside, and then there is a road leading you to you know nowhere." Yes. You know? <laughs> <laughs> And at the same time, you know, a road leading you to somewhere, you know, like that ambiguity is mm. absolutely wonderful. And Islam uh, Rafa is a fantastic artist. Absolutely. So, yeah, um, you know, I, I actually first encountered him when I published my first book. Um, and I, I don't know whether he wrote to me or how how I got to know of him. I think he had produced some art and then put that book, uh, which, I mean, the, the cover was great in that book, but it was entirely drawn by my my current publisher. Mm-hmm. And I think he then made contact then, and uh, I, I've been looking forward to having a, a collaborative you know, relationship with him, and I, I got this opportunity. I, I just thought it was wonderful. Yeah. Yes, yes. No, uh, I thought that was another layer to the many layers that you weave through this particular book. Um, so, there are lots of books out there about land issues in South Africa, but I must say what your book does, it actually shows us or says to us, we're focusing on the wrong things. Um, and our conversation is not nuanced or does not reflect the depth of the matter enough. For you, what should the land reform question in South Africa be focused on? Yeah, I mean, I think you're right in, in one thing, which is the complexity of the problem. I think that the, the more you read South Africa's history, the more you discover one layer, the more that layer, what you find is another layer of complexity. And uh, things are never as they appear. You know, and that's the one story I sort of try to illustrate the problem in its width, in its depth, but also in its complexity. I think that way then we can begin to have a, you know, a proper conversation about how actually should we undo the consequences of the past. Now, what should we be talking about? I think we should be talking about the past in its various guises and manifestations. We should be talking about how to undo that past, but we should not be stuck in that past. We should be trying to envision, uh, visualize, imagine a new society and a new country in which we don't just resolve, you know, the, the problems in the margin, but we, we try and focus on the, I think, core of the impact of colonial conquest. Mm. So three features stand out for me, and these are things that run through the book. The one is what colonialism was about was obviously about land. It, it was about the you know, the, the taking of the land of brown-skilled, flat-nosed people, you know. Uh, and that happened across Africa, and it happened in Asia, and it, it happened in the Americas. But what this was about, it was about the dispersal um, of brown-skilled, flat-nosed people. The second thing what colonialism was about is was about a large conversion of people that are brown and black, and conversion into labor. You know, they moved from the rest. Some of them were prosperous, but most of them were self-sufficient. I mean, they may not have been wealthy nations, but they were certainly self-sufficient. They didn't uh, depend on you know, external forces. But 
the process was to convert them into wage laborers. Uh, mm. and you find this in many of their writings. I mean, the, the sort of, I would say, epic in quotes. Uh, quotations are from, you know, uh, Sir George Gray, you know, who really epitomizes uh, the colonial attitudes of assimilation. And mm-hmm. so, so it's the conversion into wage laborers. Then the second thing is the taking of assets, you know, so it's the taking of assets. And what are those assets? I think the most important was livestock, so the cattle, the sheep, but mainly, mainly the cattle is the, it's the taking of cattle. These three then intersect, they overlap, and sometimes they collide. And that's where the complexity is. So thinking about the future, it, it's impossible not to think about how to undo this past. What we have been doing, I think, you know, is largely to use the law in ways that uh, privilege the past, in ways that protect the past. And I think there is a way in which we can think about the law differently as the ultimate mm-hmm instrument of decoloniality. Yes, in fact, in the book you write uh, that it recognizes that the conquest of the native people of this country was not a single event characterized by a once-off taking of the land. Rather, it was gradual and totalizing in its design, as you've reflected on uh, colonialism and what it was actually about. But what you also do through the book is, I wanted to talk about the Constitution. Um, you support land reform, of course, quite passionately, and demonstrate in the book that the Constitution is not an obstacle to land reform. So is the amendment, talk of the amendment, the process that's currently underway to amend Section 25 of the Constitution, a red herring? by a government that has lost momentum, that has lost focus, um, we could even say that has lost vision and undoubtedly capacity on land um, restitution, redistribution and reform? Yeah, I mean, I think that if, you know, so if the whole talk about, you know, let's amend the law, and it doesn't matter which law you amend, whether it's the constitution or statute or whatever, but if the debate about amending the law is premised on the assumption that a, a change in the legal instrument will result in a wholesale of placing of the land in the hands of the people. I mean, that, of course, is untrue and it simply cannot be realized. But if the point of the discussion of the amendment is, you know, I used the term the other day, metaphorical, in the sense that it's a reminder of the incomplete uh, revolution uh, or the abandoned revolution and that's what is symbolized by expropriation without compensation, then that is a worthwhile discussion. But I'm afraid that it is not the metaphorical use or the symbolical use that is at stake. It is rather the effect uh, of the two, which is there is a real sense in which the politicians are selling the idea to ordinary people that if only we could change the constitution, then the path towards liberation and freedom and prosperity will be open. And that at the moment, it is blocked by the constitution. Now, that notion uh, of the constitution as a stumbling block and that the amendment would then open up this great possibility to Canada, that is selling false hopes. What we have seen in the past uh, 27 years of trial and error with the the land, there was a time when 
there was a great promise, uh, a, a time of you know, uh, activity and imagination. And that period you could probably trace from the early 1990s. There was imaginary work and uh, uh, intellectual work when documents like the Reconstruction and Development Program were produced, documents like the Ready to Govern uh, strategy of the ANC was produced, documents like the White Paper on Land Reform were produced, and documents, in fact, even like the, the interim constitution as well as the final constitution. Uh, this was a period of imaginative intellectual work uh, to produce a framework which opposed the problem from, you know, a complex perspective, but it seriously tried to move towards a solution that is future-oriented. Mm. What that created that space that in the early, uh, that late 1980s, early 1990s, probably it goes on to around 2005, 2006. What that created was to create a way of thinking about the land which is structured and perhaps strategic as well, which is to think about land in terms of three separate uh, programs, like things that are tangible that we can do to think about land through the eyes of restitution, through the eyes of redistribution, and through the eyes of security of tenure, Mm -hmm. which then combine the the land story and restitution being what you do with people who lost land rights after the 19th of June, 1913, and redistribution being the thing you do for people who cannot prove that they lost land after the 19th of June, 1913, but nevertheless can prove that they need the land, you know, purely futuristically. And presently, actually, thinking about people who just need the land. And then tenure being the thing you do to protect people living in farms, mm. and to protect people living in informal settlements. And so those three you know, pillars of land reform were a useful way of thinking intellectually about what to do with the legacies of the, the land problem. What you then encounter is that after the, that first phase, this what the phase I call the you know, imaginative, intellectually imaginative phase, what you thereafter get is a process, I would say, you know, initially of stagnation where not much land is actually transferred. And then you get into a phase where things just totally fall apart. Where, and here you have cases like the Malamala case, where the government decides not just to pay you know, owners of land what would be market-related, but truly stratospheric amounts where the government does, I mean, in that case actually is the sore point. The government does an assessment of how much it should compensate the owners of the Malamala game reserve, the red race family. It decides that they are entitled to no more than 460 million red. On the other hand, the red race family themselves, they decide that they are entitled to not less than 790 million red. But eventually the government pays them 1.1 billion red. I mean, it, so it, it moves from you know, uh, the, the market related to the truly stratospheric. But in that period as well, there is not much land that actually gives landowners into landless people. You know, just nothing happens. And the same thing with the the, the claims of labor tenants. You know, the process closes in 2001, and just nothing happens. And by the time the labor tenants go to court, they 
11,000 claims that are just piling up in the offices. So we've got this period for the next about 15 years, you know, where the, the program, you know, just initially stagnates and then falls apart, which we must now, you know, firstly get back on track. So, and then the last thing to say about, you know, this thing about whether, you know, this is just a diversion is that when we debate this amendment and we are finished with it and we have effected it, so in other words, Section 25 to be now says there will be an expropriation without compensation, either for everything or for specific cases. At that point in time, there will still be no land that has actually left private landowners. That 74% we usually talk about, uh, yes. which is owned by the 4%, that land will still be there. You know, it, it, it will not move into the the uh, 80% that is landed. <laughs> so there is no discussion on what actually needs to be done to move the land so that the lenders can actually be owners or at least have access to, to the land. And so that's why I've been for four years now, perhaps sounding like a broken record, I've been very, very skeptical of the politicians telling us this dream of land for everyone if only we could change the constitution. Yes. Advocate, uh, stay with us because what you've just said now, especially around the Malamala issue, um, brings us into the area of just and equitable. What is just and equitable compensation and so on? Even questions coming in from some of our listeners. One wants to know about whether or not this delay is around fears of attracting sanctions, just like our neighboring countries. And interestingly, former President Tabombeki has made comments in the recent week, of course, saying that the ANC's uh, inclusion of expropriation without compensation goes against um, the Freedom Charter and also warns about this very issue of sanctions or what this will do, the kind of wrath uh, South Africa will then incur from um, international community or from those who want to invest in the country. We take a break and we're back with Advocate Tembe Gangugai Tobi. 702 Masterclass we're in the throes of a masterclass with uh, advocate Tim Begangugai Tobi this afternoon looking at the land question in South Africa. Um, it's quite complex, but his position, of course, as we outlined earlier on, is to say, let's ask different questions. Let's shift our focus to uh, a different area, taking in mind the nuance, the depth and the width of the of this issue with our history in South Africa. Advocate, thank you for staying with us. Now, um, just before the break, you know, raised a question that's coming on uh, WhatsApp. Uh, and it says, can you ask your guests, does the slow pace of the government to move forward with the land issue, is it not the fear of attracting sanctions just like our neighboring countries? And I found the comments of uh, former President Tabombeki in a letter addressed to the ANC NEC about uh, land expropriation without compensation going against what the ANC uh, has stood for for all these years and that it's a much more pan you know, more PAC position um, and that it goes against the the, the Freedom Charter. If we are to also, let's spend a little bit of time looking at the ANC's own policy confusion, um, because yeah. with the the submissions made by the EFF, for instance, we start to see the ANC moving closer to the EFF's position of expropriation without uh, compensation. What do you think of this assertion that uh, investors might move away? Sure, I mean. I, I, I think that the sort of investor fear is 
gravely exaggerated um, because the Zimbabwean story, and I've sort of tried to spend some time mm-hmm. reading up on that story. So the whole story begins in Lancaster, of course, in 1979. The deal in Lancaster is that the land that was taken under colonialism would not be transferred to indigenous people of Zimbabwe all at once. Instead, there would be a framework of law which would entitle the state to intervene in private land relations, sometimes taking land for resettlement, sometimes taking land for farming. When it does so, it would compensate those who have been, uh, uh, who have lost the land. But its program would be driven by the ethos of reversing the consequences of colonialism. 20 years later, in 2000, not much progress had been made. In fact, there were signs that the project had been captured by the elite and the politically connected. Mm. But the politicians then changed their stance. They began to blame the law and they began to blame civil society, blamed the opposition. So blaming the law, of course, also meant that they were blaming the judges. One of the first things they did was to storm, and I use the term, you know, mm. deliberately, was to storm the high court and chase away the judges, blaming them for constraining land reform, having completely forgotten that it was in fact the politicians who allocated themselves the farm. But as soon as they ratcheted up the rhetoric against the judges, the genie was out of the bottle. It mm. was impossible to repent. So that story is, in fact, a story about the breakdown of the rule of law, a deliberately engineered breakdown of the rule of law, rather than a story of the collapse of the land reform. When we have been looking at that story again, another 20 years after, this is now 40 years in total, but 20 years after, 20, 20, after 2000, mm. the new signs of Zimbabwe are to return to the status quo ante, mm. to turn back to what they did prior to 2000. And the past 20 years then has taught them the lessons that in fact what they should have done is to install the rule of law. So South Africa does not face the problem of so-called disinvestment. Unless, of course, it constrains the rule of law, it doesn't face the problem simply on account of its refusal to pay market-related compensation. Mm. Remember, that's the deal that was reached in 1994 already. The fact that property owners would not be entitled to market-based compensation has been part of the law in this country for 27 years. Not as if there has been a wide-scale departure of investors. So the problem has been that we had a framework, which, by the way, was not given to us on a platter, but it was partly contested. In fact, when the ANC went to the negotiations, and I've now studied virtually, I doubt if there's one that I've missed, but maybe one day someone will... But I've studied virtually all of their land policies 
before 1994, going into the negotiations. The last document was a 1991 proposed Bill of Rights. And if you look at the property clause that they proposed, it was replicated almost word for word into the final section 25 of the Constitution. So right. there were three things they wanted. Yes. There were three things they wanted. So one, they didn't want, they wanted the rights to restitution. And the National Party, Sheila Kandera, was, you know, extremely uh, forceful in arguing the position of the National Party. They wanted the rights of restitution. Sheila Kandera opposed the rights of restitution to be inscribed in the Bill of Rights. Right. And we could, let me, let me pause you there. So, because I've got to take headlines and we'll come back to the three things that they, they wanted. I've got to take eyewitness news headlines. 702. Masterclass. Yes, and let's get back to our masterclass. Advocate, I had to interrupt you there to uh, take headlines. My guest is Advocate Timbeck and Ngai Tobi this afternoon as we look at uh, land reform, land restitution and redistribution in South Africa. And we're at the point where you were taking us through how consistent the ANC had been in all its policy documents, even post-democracy. Yes. So, yeah, so the one, one thing they wanted, uh, which was a point of dispute, is the right of restitution, right? So they want that the, the current structure of Section 25 incorporates the rights of restitution. Now, that's unusual in many constitutions that you have the right to get the land back. The second thing that was highly contentious was the right to property itself. You know, the National Party insisted on inserting into the structure of the Constitution the right to hold and to dispose of private property. They, they lost on that. We don't have that right expressed in those positive terms. For obvious reasons, that Section 25 was intended to be the clause that ensures the transformation of property as opposed to its preservation. And then the third thing, which is most, which was most controversial at the time, was when an expropriation occurs, how should it be compensated? The National Party insisted on prompt adequate market-based compensation, mm. which it claimed to be consistent with the international norms. The ANC, on the other hand, wanted a justice-based compensation formula. The ANC won that debate hands down. So on the three issues that were debatable and debated during the negotiations, the ANC won all of them. But they won the constitutional debate in 1996. In 1997, they passed government policies which guarantee landowners on the basis of willing seller, willing buyer, market-based mm. compensation approaches. And in practice, so firstly, you've got government policies that contradict the Constitution. And in practice, they were not even paying market value. They were paying usually above market value. Mm-hmm. You know? So coming back to the faithfulness to the constitutional norms, which is justice and equity are the governing principles. There's no impact on foreign investors in this country. They know that the law in South Africa is that you're never entitled to market-based compensation. You're always entitled. And we are not the only one. Yes, Germany... And hence you say that, uh, yeah, the Germany example is quite refreshing to see what they have done. And it raises the point of um, the interest of the public versus the interest of the people who are affected. And I found that notion to be 
um, exciting, you know, when you think of using that as a, a, a principle to, to work with, to rely on in decision-making, what is in the interest of the public versus the interest of the people who are affected. Even when you talk about the criminalization of squatting, which is quite a sore point for me, you raise the concept of public interest versus the interest of those that are affected when talking about justice and equity compensation. Um, it's a fascinating one. Why don't we look at the interest of the... Why does that not outweigh everything else. Yeah, precisely. I mean, this is most fascinating, this question you've now raised. It's really truly an exciting part, I think, of the of the book, because we have not developed a justice-based way of thinking about land reform, mm. right? Because we are still stuck in what I've called the private property paradigm, which privileges the interests of property owners and landowners. Now, this is despite the fact that we've got a legal system that says we shouldn't. We have not thought about how to create a dispensation of land reform that is based on justice and equity. Now, I've got a full chapter in the book, I think actually maybe two chapters or three chapters, that try to unpack these notions of how to think about justice Mm. in land reforms. One of the ways of thinking about justice in land reform is in an expropriation context. Not to place the interest of the private landowner above the interest of the public, but to always place the interest of the public, in a sense, as constantly overriding the interest of private Landowners. There will be cases where private landowners' interest must override the public interest. But by and large, if we think about land reform, we should be thinking about placing the public interest. In other words, the interest of the marginalized and the, and the landless as the predominant interest in thinking about. So that goes, for instance, you've got section 25, it has several factors that must be taken into account in the determination of compensation. But the structure of the section, before you go into the items, but the structure of the section is talks of an equitable balance. Yes. What is this equitable balance? You know, we haven't thought about what this equitable balance is. Now, the crucial thing there is the word equitable. Mm. And it's not equal, it's equitable, which actually means you already presuppose that you are moving into a position of inequality. Mm. And the law seeks to create a position of equity. And equity requires you to lift the position of the weaker and the poor and the underprivileged. And liberty at the expense, of course, of the position of the powerful and the lender and the property class. So it's those concepts that I'm thinking about seriously, about how, in fact, to create equity using the language we already have been given, the text. It's in the Constitution. Mm. So that language needs to be unpacked about how equity ought to be created. And equity is different from equality in the right. sense that you presuppose that the parties are unequal and you create an equitable dispensation to create the equality. Yes. Whereas often people are presupposed to be equal, but actually they are not. So the law, instead of thinking about all of us mm. in an artificial way as equal, 
but to think of us as unequal and to think that the function of the law is to create the equality. Mm, mm. Could, let's take this question from Brendan uh, because it also touches on uh, one of the themes in the book. Brendan, hello. Yes, hi, thanks. Great topic. Um, I've just got one question. Mm. Um, can can advocate tell us about the kind of focus um, in terms of you know transformation when it comes to land? Because for me, it's a question of it's not just a question of ownership or you know accumulation, but also a question of productivity. Okay. And more to the point, who claims the surplus from the productivity? You know, I think. It's I think that's a really important question. Um, I'd be interested to know what you're getting. All right. Brendan, thank you very much for that. Uh, there is a breakdown that's even given in the book from the previous land audit. I'll try and find it uh, as we take the spot break and let the advocate reflect on Brendan's question as we get into the final section of our masterclass. My guest is advocate Tembegang Mukaitobi, author of Land Matters, South Africa's Failed Land Reform, Land Reforms and the Road Ahead. 702 Masterclass And we're back in the final section of our Masterclass. I was unable to get to that page, which just shows you the huge disparities of uh, land ownership. Um, Advocate, I don't know if you remember the figures uh, from that last land audit and maybe your reflections on uh, Brendan's question. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I don't think anyone really says that there should be no productivity in land. Uh, I think the question is what does productivity mean? Um, so often the problem is people say, well, don't give the land to black people because that will destroy the productive economic activity in those properties, right? Now, that manifestly, you know, cannot be supported. The, and the question is a complex one for another reason, uh, which is often when, you know, so you talk of let's give farm. Farm X at the moment is producing oranges, and these oranges are sold in the market, etc. But alongside this farm, there is like a, a lot of black people that are living in squalor. And over time, they win the claim and they take the farm and they decide that actually what's better for them is settlement. You know, they want to convert the place to houses. Do you then argue that that amounts to lack of productivity? Or do you actually acknowledge that it reduces another person's social concern of homelessness? Mm. Mm. And therefore, you actually accept that that's the consequence of, you know, disposition, that at some point you have many, many people that have no homes and that if they get a piece of land, they should, in fact, be entitled to prove for themselves how, you know, the pieces of ground ought to be utilized. So that's one answer. But there's also another answer, which is where there has been a problem has been what we call post-segment support. So often, you know, many, many claimants, and the problem here in this country is, you know, so you get one farm. You know, one farm is owned by one farmer or maybe two farmers. But it's 300, 400, 500 hectares, and it's so-called, you know, uh, production. Mm. When you claim back, it's usually then returned to 500 people, in other words, to a community of 500. Mm. And so even if they maintain the same level of agricultural uh, output, and they maintain the same level 
hmm. of income and profit. There is just no way that it can sustain 500 families because you have to split, say, a profit of two, three, four, five million piana. But you have to split it 500 ways. And previously, you gave it to only one family. Mm. And that made sense. But once you think about splitting it 500 ways, then of course, it doesn't make sense. So, which means, again, we come back to what, you know, one of the themes of the book. We are never going to resolve the land problem unless we focus on private property. Mm-hmm. Unless we make more land available to more people. Yeah. Which is why I thought those figures would be able to elucidate, just to kind of give a much clearer idea of uh, the quantities of land that are owned by a small number of people. Even government land uh, is not necessarily going to solve this problem. Distributing government land is not going to solve this problem. Um, It is such a complex issue and I've had so many, I still have so many questions. And one particular big theme that I had hoped we'd spend time on is women and land. But I'm going to request that that be a focus on another day because that in itself, I think, shows the uh, an area of neglect when it comes to um, yeah. how we discuss and how we approach the land question in South Africa. And then another area of neglect is urban land. And um, yeah. what are some of the critical questions about urban land that we need to, to consider? Because you raised the point about urbanization rates of 60% uh, in the past 20 years. Uh, there's apartheid yeah. spatial planning. And at the same time, we have an economy that's not creating jobs. There aren't enough jobs for the unskilled. And add to that, uh, no access to land for livelihoods and work. Um, and simply as part of social safety or se- social safety net, we, we haven't considered or thought about the land in that way. Um, even urban yeah. land, as people flock to yeah. the cities, what should our yeah. considerations be? Yeah, yeah I think where the policy gap that is identified in the book is where the policy gap is, is we are not thinking of land and housing in an integrated way. So you've got your Department of Housing and your Department of Land Affairs. Usually your Department of Land Affairs is a department that is focused on rural development and agriculture. And your Department of Housing is focused on urban land. But that's silos, that's thinking separately. So we're not thinking about the integration. So people living in the cities, I mean, the villages, the Bantu stands, the former Bantu stands, have been completely abandoned. They have been uh, deprived of talent and skills. Mm. The World Bank produced this report showing 60% urban migration in the past 20 years in this country. So everyone is going into the city. And yet you have a government policy on the agriculture and land affairs side that focuses on the villages and the former Pakistans and the farms. And a lot of land, quote-unquote, discussions that focuses there. And very little that's talking about housing. The problem, of course, is when we in the cities talk land, what we really mean, we want housing. The reason for that is because we see the land as connected to economic activity. So what we do, we want places that will make us get close enough to spaces of 
economic activity, spaces where we work. Mm-hmm. Now, until the government thinks seriously about the reform of the urban land spaces, you know, I mean, I went through all of it's a labyrinth. I went through the regulations from the 1920s right up to the 1990s. The regulations that deliberately kept native people, uh, I, mean, I don't use the term offensively, mm-hmm. quote-unquote native people, native people out of the city and only as surgeons, visitors into the city. And the fact that those legacies of those policies are yet to undergo fundamental transformation right. in ways that now begin to acknowledge and to recognize that the urban space is also a quote-unquote native space. Mm. Right? And this is the big debate of the day is who in fact owns the, the urban space. Because the law of it and the law of the colony was that the native has no ownership rights over the urban space. Yes. So mainly the one thing is thinking in a fundamentally uh, different way about the urban space and its ownership. Mm. And then thinking about an integrated way between land and housing and then dismantling the silo between the two. Mm. Um, and the hope is that with the latest Ngonyama Trust uh, judgment, you know, the judgment that was handed down in uh, KwaZulu-Natal, that it would bring about uh, tenure reform, some kind of uh, uh, tenure reform out of, of that judgment. And we didn't even get to address this particular issue because it's a fascinating case. Um, and it links, of course, to the past that you so well documented in your book. Uh, but sadly, we're out of time. Um, and I just had a, my heart set, in fact, on reading just parts of what you say at the end of the book, because I think it really expresses the challenge that you're putting to us as South Africans and as uh, the lawmakers of this country. You say that this should not define the future, however, just uh, commenting on a previous section. But you say if land reform under the rule of law is about the restoration of African identities, we should interrogate what precisely was lost in the years of conquest. Land was not the only asset. Cattle farming implements, labor, and human potential were taken. African societies were broken up, their cultures ravaged, and their identities erased. Legalistic formulations of restitution or redistribution are too narrow to fully capture the scope of meaningful restoration. A forward-looking reparative uh, project is urgent. We need a new way to look at the future. And I think that encapsulates really... Uh, where we started about why we need to ask different questions and refocus the land question in order to energize it, but to also fully uh, restore and uh, 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 redistribute uh, the land. Thank you so much, Advocate. It was uh, lovely to engage you on what is an incredible book on the history of this country. Thank you for the invitation. I look forward to... um Chapter two, which is women and land. Yes, yes, that is your agreement right there. <laughs> you've, co- <laughs> you've committed. <laughs> I know publicly. <laughs> publicly. We'll be there to remind you. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. There will be chapter two. Advocate Tembek Angu Gaitobi.